and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great, great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission. We are coaches and facilitators, and we are on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like leadership teamwork, communication, and curiosity. Curiosity is a theme throughout today's conversation. When you label those competencies as soft, it devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. Today's conversation really gets into the weeds of golf, and we certainly have golf stories and analogies in the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have purchased, and I truly have been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lastly, If you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It does help us expand our reach for the podcast. Many people find us through iTunes. So thanks to all of you who continue to spread these intentional performers with the world, whether it's sharing a conversation via text, passing it on via email, or even sending it out on social media. We really appreciate all of you for the continued support with the podcast, with the book, and with everything that we are up to. So thanks for the continued support. Now to today's guest. Dave Phillips is an interesting and fascinating guy. He believes in living with passion, curiosity, and purpose. That word curiosity is going to come out throughout today's conversation. And he's also going to talk about passion, passion for golf and passion for what he cares deeply about, which is coaching and teaching. 
And he's described as a visionary thinker with a passion for high-performance coaching. He co-founded the Titleist Performance Institute, also known as TPI. He's a member of the Professional Golf Association of America since 1993, and he's been a golf magazine top 100 teacher since 2000. He's also a Golf Digest top 50 teacher in America. He currently coaches world number one golfer John Rahm. You read that right. You heard that right. He currently is John Rahm's coach. If you follow golf, you know how great John has been, and he's only getting started. Dave is also an integral part of the team of Hall of Fame golfer Phil Mickelson. So we're going to talk about Phil's mindset. We're going to talk about what makes Phil unique and special and how he is similar and different from John in today's conversation. And in 2004, Dave and Dr. Greg Rose developed TPI, which is the world's first golf performance facility that looked at every aspect of a player's game. TPI has really changed how people teach golf and how instructors think about the body's uh, impact with the swing of golf and the game of golf. As TPI developed, it became evident that they should pass on the information obtained from working with the game's best through education. So they created a TPI certified brand, and that is where they spend most of their time today. It is the largest of its kind globally, and they actually help accredit experts in a multitude of fields within the world of golf, and they have educated over 27,000 people. So think of the impact that they've had, and that is over 65 countries worldwide. Dave has appeared on the Golf Channel. He's appeared all over the golf world, Golf Digest, Sports Illustrated, Golf Magazine, Men's Health, uh, Wall Street Journal, and he also does a a lot of public speaking around the idea of performance. So I think you're going to find that Dave is a genuine, curious guy who loves to learn. He's authentic. He is somebody who is very, very passionate about golf, but he's also just passionate about high performance. So let's kick it over to Dave and learn from him. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to dive in with you. And I'd love to start, you mentioned before we hit record, your relationship with John Rahm, who is the number one golfer in the world. Uh, Seemingly last year was ridiculously consistent um, over the course of the year, even though consistency in golf doesn't necessarily really exist. Um, But you mentioned sort of his path and his journey from a junior golfer to a pro golfer. So I'd love to just start there and hear what you've observed, what you've seen, what you've learned working with John. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it and I love doing things like this. But, uh, you know, as uh, as a golf professional and a performance coach, you know, working with a young player and seeing him develop the way John has has been really special. And when I look at John from where he came from, you know, the northern part of Spain, I used to do some work for the Spanish Golf Federation, I still do. And how I came to meet him was they asked me, you know, they said, we've got some college players in the US that we support when they're over there, but a lot of them don't have access to coaching, would you consider taking a look at a couple of our players? And of course, I said, yes. And I met this young kid called John Rahm, who showed up uh, like most college kids do, kind of disheveled and with a mixed bag of equipment. And immediately I could see there was something different, like just the strike and the way he composed himself, uh, his confidence. And it was kind of a little bit of a cocky arrogance that he had. And I was like, all right, let's see it. And, you know, everything I asked him to do, he could pretty much do. 
And then I started to dive a little deeper, which is what we did at the Titleist Performance Institute, which I built for Titleist. And that was really build the first Olympic style training center for golf. And so we dive a little deeper. We heavily look at the physical attributes of athletes first, because that kind of unlocks how they work, right? So, you know, trying, there's a lot of people trying to be the next golfer in the world, but they're trying to be somebody else because they have an idol. And that's not necessarily who they are. So kind of my expertise is taking what I get and then figuring out that puzzle. It's like a Rubik's cube or a puzzle. And you're trying to put the pieces back together so they can perform at their best. And I see a lot of younger players struggle because they're trying to be somebody that they're not. So in John's case, it was, here's this kid that had some physical issues. He, you know, from a child, he had um, a uh, club foot. They broke his right ankle. They had to reset it. So his dorsiflexion in his ankle was somewhat limited. And he's publicized talking about that. Well, that set up a variety of different things, golf swing wise, that you have to be aware of. So I looked at the physical first, how he moved. And then what we did is we started to build a plan around movement. And I left the swing alone. He already had a great golf swing from his original coach in Spain and his dad. And I was just like, this thing works. Just let me teach you how to use it better. And let's just make sure your body is functional. So in his kind of rise to where he is today, we built a team around him that comprises of medical and fitness. And believe it or not, we go after physical constantly. So every week on the PJ tour, we physically assess his body. And then based on how his body's movement movement is, we set a plan for the week for practice, for play, for recovery, for shutdown. And that's been a, a recipe for success. And it's just been exciting to see where he's come, where he is now. And I'm more excited about what I think he's going to achieve in the future. And he's already achieved a lot. So it's just a, a fun project and fun for me to be involved with the team. Going back to that first moment where you're seeing all these golfers and you're watching them strike the ball and you're getting to meet them and interact with them. You mentioned that he was different and you noticed his psychology being different. And I think you just were cocky, arrogant. Can you just go into that in a little more detail? Yeah, you know, John's a big kid and, you know, he would, the first time I met him, you know, he had this incredible strike of the golf ball, you know, as, as, as professionals, we look at the sound, like I hear the sound of the strike, I can stand on a driving range at a tournament, I can even close my eyes and almost pick out who's hitting golf balls by the sound and the strike and John had a very specific strike. He also had a very unusual swing, he had the short swing with a very bowed left wrist at the top. And uh, it was different. It, it was unusual. And I love the unusual, right? Because it makes me think about, well, why does this work? You know, and then in talking to him, he was just so confident, like he was already one of the top amateurs in the world. Um, you know, he won, he was number one amateur in the world in his, I think, sophomore, junior, senior year, he won the Hogan Award. So he was already an established college player. But you could tell that he was going to take it to another level. You know, there's a lot of kids come in and they're trying to be, as I mentioned before, somebody they're not. John knew who he was. He just didn't quite know how to do it. And the questions he was answering, it wasn't like, oh, well, how does Phil Mickelson do it? Or how does, you know, somebody like Tiger do it? Or what do you think about this swing or that swing? It was, how can I do better with what I already have? And it was just the the questions he was answering that gave me that that confidence. So he was curious about, hey, how can I get better? How can I improve? But you also mentioned your own curiosity about, hey, 
how does he do it with this unique swing? So can you talk about your curiosity and how that helps you as a coach and perhaps his curiosity and how that might help him as a player? Yeah, you know, I, I'm always looking for individuals, right? I, I think that the best performers don't look like each other. And especially in golf, there's thousands of ways to swing the club, right? But it's all based on what you can physically do. So to me, the first thing I do is I come out from a physical aspect. And that is a TPI, kind of one of our secret sources is that we look at the body as an alternating pattern. The foot, you know, has an arch in it. It creates stability. The ankle should be mobile. The knee should be stable. The hip should be mobile. The lower back should be stable. The thoracic spine should be mobile. So the body works in this alternating pattern of stable segments connected to mobile joints, right? And that is life. That's how when you look at a little baby, do a perfect squat or get up and move, you're like, how can the body move that way? We all once moved that way, right? So what changes? So when I see something unusual, the first thing I do is I go physically assess it and go, okay, is it working because that's the only way it can work because of a physical limitation? Or did they create this on their own? And it helps me build this plan in my mind of what I'm dealing with. And, you know, then I go about building that structure around it because if it's good, I just want to make it better. I don't, don't want to change it. And we use you know, 3D biomechanics and movement assessment screens and all kinds of things to, to check. And that's the beauty of it is it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters, can you perform? And uh, that that's my own curiosity when I see something unusual. I, I like to see unusual golf swings. I like to see unusual looking athletes, tall, short, wide, long, whatever, because if they're competing at the same level as what people consider the model, then I'm like, I'm way more interested in them. How are they doing it than the normal, right? Hey, Dave, before we go to John's curiosity, I want to stay on that. Why is it that you think as humans, we like comparisons? We like to see, like, I come from a basketball background. And a lot of times in basketball, they'll say, who does that person remind you of? And then they put a comparison of a six foot six person and someone who plays the same position. Why do you think that we're always looking to compare rather than take it from the lens of what you're saying, which is, wow, they can get to impact. I wonder why that is. And let's go discover like what's actually going on there. Yeah, I think honestly, because it's easier, right? It's like, there's a model on the TV screen. You look like them, then why shouldn't we just look at that? So people are always looking for the, the workaround, but great athletes aren't. They're willing to do the extra things that others aren't willing to do. Same in business, right? So in the business protocols too, there's people that are willing to, to, to be curious, to look at things that maybe aren't the norm, because that might actually give them a leg up when they put the pieces back together. So I'm always looking at like a big jigsaw puzzle, and I'm just trying to organize the pieces in a way for that athlete that allow them to perform. And I think that's really why we have comparisons in culture today is it's easy. Hey, let's just look at that and try and copy that. Yeah. And when I was doing research for this conversation, I loved how you talked about how curiosity has been a game changer for you in your career and building a business. We'll talk about in a little bit about coffee and, sure. and how that plays a role in your life. But you also talked about how curiosity sometimes got in the way for you as a golfer. And so I wrote a whole book about how your mindset for preparation should actually be different than your mindset for performance. And you mentioned Rom's arrogance. I would imagine he also has amazing humility. Hey, Dave, what do you see? What do I need to get better? How can I improve that humility mixed with the arrogance when I'm over a 
you know, 10 foot putt to win a championship that I believe that I'm going to sink it or that I believe I can be the best golfer in the world, even though my background has had physical limitations in my life, the mixture of humility and arrogance. And think of curiosity too. Like curiosity is how we learn, grow, develop, improve. But when I'm standing over a ball and looking to execute, I need to just kind of let go of my mind and get into my body and um, hit a target. And so I'd be curious to learn about how curiosity sometimes may have gotten in the way for you as a golfer when you were competing and when you can see it sometimes getting in the way for people as well when they're competing uh, today. I I think, you know, curiosity is that, you know, natural instinct we have to want to learn and to want to get better at something that we're passionate about. Right. And I see what great athletes have in common is they have a love for the game that they're playing And, and it's intense, like to get to the highest level, they just love to compete. They love to play the sport they're in. And to do that, we're often exposed to better players that are better than us. That's how we learn. I had an older big brother that was better than me. I watched him. I was curious but then you start to try and copy them, right? And that's not necessarily what's best for you. So I think that's the danger of being curious is that you you don't know how to assemble the pieces. And that's where great coaching comes in, where a good coach can actually look at that and actually give you practice protocols or a plan to develop. And to your point, and you know, I've, I've read most of your book, not all of it, I'm still reading it and it's great. But to, to your point, I think that there's, a lot of us that are curious, but it does affect our ability to perform in competition. And that's why, you know, when I look at training today, there's there's always going to be skill and physical skill. You know, I need to work on my game, whatever. And then there's going to be physical body. How do I train my body? And, you know, the one big thing that's missing in most cases is mental training because we don't know how to do it. But, you know, like if you go to Formula One, which I have in in Italy, they have a a mental acuity training center. They believe in training your brain as much as your body, as much as your skill, because you can't use the other two to their max if you don't have brain training, you know, protocols. And we're just kind of scratching the surface of that now because there's tools that are available and there's games that are available that can actually measure our brains and see how we perform. And I I don't think it's so much, even though the brain is plastic, I don't think it's so much we should change our brain. I think it's more if we can learn what how we are, how can we then take that into a coaching model? And that's more exciting to me than, than actually trying to change somebody's brain, which I think is much harder. Yeah, it's complex. And I think we've tried neurotechnology and brain games and brain training. um, And that can be useful, but there's also psychology, which is a little bit different. And I think anyone claiming that they have the mental side figured out is is lying. I, I think it's each human has an experience and it's nature and it's nurture and it's it's where those intersect. For you at TPI, how have you all evolved? I think you've been at it since 2004. So we're coming up on almost 20 years. How have you evolved even beyond mental, but the elements of developing golfers? And I know you also work with other athletes and other sports. So how have you all evolved in the last 20 years? What have you seen uh, from an evolutionary standpoint? So, you know, we've always based everything we've done around the physical, right? So we came up with a basic assessment screen that that studies those points that I mentioned earlier about stability and mobility. I have to know how you move. I can't ask you as a coach to perform at a certain level or build a certain golf swing if I don't know how you move, because I'm going to be right half the time. 
And then you're going to not have trust in me. So, you know, the first thing, if you came to me is I'd physically assess you, I'd look at your movement pattern and then I'd go, okay, I got two, two options. We need to change your movement pattern to build the swing you ultimately want, or I can teach you how to use what you already have. Right. And there are a lot of professional athletes that fail our assessment screens, but they're the best at what they do. Maybe that's what makes them the best. Maybe those limitations actually make them the best at what they do, right? And, and so understanding them and how they've, they've built these compensations and how they work, that might be their secret source. So it's not always about change. It's about understanding. And that's, to me, I think what we've evolved at TPI. And by going into other sports, you know, we originally were built around golf and we've worked with thousands of PGA, LPGA professional golfers around the world. And we've helped build teams around them through our education platform. But about five years ago, we got inundated by requests for baseball. And now we've got 12 major league baseball teams sending different players from different positions in. Some of them are injured trying to get back. Some of them just want a different set of eyes. And, you know, we learn from them and they learn from us. It's a two-way street. So by going into another sport, especially a rotary sport like baseball, I'm like, hmm, maybe I can learn something from those athletes that I can take back to my golfers and vice versa. And uh, that's what's been so exciting for us is branching out into other sports, seeing these incredible other athletes, and then figuring out from them, do they do the same thing? Do they fit into the same model? Or is there something new that we can learn? Yeah, what have you learned working with those other athletes and other sports? Is everything pretty similar to what you're doing or have you had to modify and adjust and adapt? So, you know, we have a system. So the system obviously starts with physical assessment screen. We use 3D biomechanics where we put sensors all over your body and we look at something called your kinematic sequence. We look at force and pressure. So how you push against the ground. So the way I look at it is, you know, 3D tells me what you do. Um, and then force, how you push against ground tells me why you do it. I mean, no, that tells me how you do it. And then the physical tells me why you do it. That's the way you do it. So we, we use that three-step process with every athlete to go, here's the makeup and here's, here's, here's what they do, how they do it and why they do it. And then we figure out, is there a better way? from what we've learned from these other things. So everybody's different though. And, and you know, the, the biggest thing I've learned from the, the very elite athletes, I've got to spend time, you know, picking, listening to Michael Phelps and listening to Michael Jordan and listening to different superstars that are the best at what they do. And when you get that one-on-one -on -one time and are able to talk and chat with them, you realize that they all have built their own process. They're all extremely confident, but it's usually the preparation they've done things. I remember Michael Phelps telling me, I knew that I was going to win when I walked out to the pool and the other athletes knew I was going to beat them. And partly it was because of the little things I did that they could see me doing. For instance, getting out of the pool after the Olympics and swimming 1500 meters is a cool down. That, that's like a mile in the pool, right? The other guys are doing like you know, a couple lengths for a cool down and he's swimming a mile. So there's just these little things and whether they plant that psychological bug in your other, in the other athletes, but it's, it's, they're all looking for a little edge and they all have another way of doing it. You mentioned getting to see Rom as a college kid and as a amateur golfer and junior golfer. I was with a mom the other day whose son is six years old mm -hmm. and he's really into golf. He loves it. And, you know, 
And then we're watching the NFL and we're watching a lot of these quarterbacks who have baseball backgrounds or played other sports. Yeah. And so obviously the question of generalization versus specialization probably get, gets asked to you all the time. What should we do with our youth when it comes to specialization and, and generalization? What's your take? How do you, how do you feel about that as it pertains to athletes? Yeah, I'm pretty adamant. I think specialization is dangerous for our kids. And I think, you know, the country has kind of driven itself to that. And I think we're hurting more young players than we're helping. Uh, and I think we got to get out of that mold. When you talk to the best of the best, they played every sport. They're able to draw from those experience into the sport that they eventually latch onto or pick. And to me, what I look at, you know, if I'm, they should play everything because it, it builds their dynamic movement patterns and it makes them more curious I think really when you start to specialize should be kind of in the second phase of growth. So growth spurt starts around 12, 13 years old. It's a little bit younger for girls because they mature quicker and then it starts to go. So you really shouldn't be specializing until you hit that first major growth spurt, 14 or 15 years old. And unfortunately there's too many young kids specializing too early and it can actually hurt them because I see these young kids that have perfect looking golf swings when they're 10, 11, 12 years old. They don't usually end up being the best. I'm looking for the ones that look like an octopus falling out of the tree, the jump that hit the ball miles, because I can harness that. They're using ground force. And, you know, kids develop a different rate. So they develop their leg strength first. They don't develop their core muscular till their early teens, and they don't fully develop their upper body strength till even the freshman, junior years of college or beyond. So if you take away jumping or something where they get ground reaction force when they're young, because you think they should look like the best player in the world, you're actually going to hurt their ability to perform. And usually those kids will get overtaken in the long run. Hey, Dave, how did you get here? And what I mean by that is, you know, you're this college golfer. Um, you wanted to become an instructor. Uh, when for you, was it an obsession around the body and the movements of the body that you really wanted to focus on? And it's also not lost on me that you said, Hey, I'm a performance coach. And so I think golf is one of the rare sports where our coaches are often instructors. We call them, you know, instructors as opposed to a golf coach. Um, so I'd love for you to suss that out, tease that out. How did you end up landing where you are today and how you think about it? You even have a train the train trainer model. Now you're coaching a lot of coaches. So talk about your path and how you landed on where you're at and, and why you philosophically believe in your model. So, yeah, I, I was a very, you know, like most young kids, I want to be the best player in the world. You know, I was born in England, raised in Kenya, grew up all over Africa, the Middle East, the Far East. And I've lived all over the world. And, you know, one of the constants for me in these third world countries was my dad would always join the local golf club because that's how you knew what was going on in those towns. And I was that range rat that not really range rat. They didn't have driving ranges. I just went out and played and I copied good players. We didn't have instruction back then. Then I managed to become a, a really good junior golfer in Africa and got the opportunity to play college golf in America, which got me out of Africa and got me here. And I immediately started to fall into this trap that I think a lot of people do in that I had a little bit of an unusual golf swing, but I could play the game. But then I started to compare myself against these kids in this big world of America who had coaches and had really technically looking good swings. And I started going down this track of trying to be better by listening to more instruction. 
and I got worse. So, you know, it led me down this path of I was a great player because I knew how to play the game and, and shape and move the golf ball. And then all of a sudden I got bound in to be better technically and it, it ended up backfiring. And, and then, you know, so my passion to, to play at the highest level, I was getting worse throughout college, not better. And as a result, after college, I still want to be connected to the game. I got involved with the PGA of America and teaching at a, at a country club because that was the way that I felt like I could stay connected to playing. And I noticed this, this problem, right? And, and the problem really was is that, you know, people think that they're going to get worse before they get better if they take a golf lesson. That's terrible, by the way. And that is a problem that the PGA of America should be addressing and needs to address because, you know, if, if you know how to teach and, and your player can physically do what you're about to ask them to do, then the next shot they hit should be the best shot they've ever hit. And too often that's wrong. And the, if you think about the constraints of teaching golf, we have these beautiful country clubs with a driving range that doesn't replicate anything we do on the golf course. So people get bound on this field where they can hit balls with no consequences and then all of a sudden they got to go to the first tee and there's water on the left and they have one golf ball and where are they going to hit it? Right. So the very way we do instruction is wrong. And so then I started looking at this more and studying it more. And it wasn't really until in your area, you know, I was in the Baltimore area. I was at Caves Valley Golf Club. Um, I was the director of instruction. And this was after being out there for a long time. I'd worked for David Ledbetter. I was building my own clientele. But I was frustrated in the fact that even working for David Ledbetter, who was the number one coach and had the best players and, you know, studying under Butch Harmon and Jim McLean and Jim Hardy and all these great coaches, every one of them had players that got better and got worse. Nobody's all their players got better. It was just this kind of thing that you're going to get worse and you're going to get better. And that bugged me. I was like, why? Why? Why shouldn't everybody get better if I really know what I'm doing? And then I noticed the same thing at my own academy at Caves Valley. I would have players that would get better and I'd have players that wouldn't. And that really frustrated me. And it actually wasn't until one day I was reading the Washington Post and there was an article in there about a guy by the name of Dr. Greg Rose, who was a chiropractor, physical therapist. He was, uh, he was down there in the Washington, D.C. area and he had built the first golf performance center in the basement of this massive gym. And he was doing physical movement screens and using 3D biomechanics to assess golfers. And I was like, what, what is this? And I called him and he said, you know, why don't you come down? I'll show you what I do. And I went down there and I remember walking in the door and he said, I'll tell you what, let me just show you something and then we will talk. And he took a student that I had with me through a physical assessment screen, a simple movement screen. And then he wrote down on this piece of paper and in about 10 minutes, he turned around, he goes, that's what they're going to do in their golf swing. And if you try and do anything else, they're going to struggle. And immediately I had this like bright light moment. I was like, oh my God, this is what's been missing in golf instruction all these years in that someone just gave me the, the keys to the car. They just said, this is the way you move. So unless you change it, your golf swing isn't going to get any better, Right. And that right there and then was the foundation. I called the, the CEO of Titleist, who I, I knew, and said, you got to see this. He came down, we sat together, and he gave us the opportunity to move to California and build the Titleist Performance Institute in Oceanside, California, which really was the first time that a 
OEM or a golf manufacturer had said, we will fund this because we believe that it's going to help golfers play the game better. And that's what led us to, I remember the first few days we were there, you know, he, he gave us 30 of the top 100 players in the world to test. So, you know, I walked into a room and had Davis Love and Phil Mickelson and all Adam Scott and all these great players. And I got to do 3D biomechanics, physical movement screens. And right away, I could see why one swung one way and one swung the other. And that was the basis of TPI. And then we were inundated with people that wanted to come and see us. And, you know, our time was just limited. So we built an education platform. And that was now how we created this Let's Coach Other Coaches and now we have 27,000 certified trainers and golf coaches in 64 countries, and we educate in 10 different languages. All right, Dave, I have a million questions, but I'm going to focus on one. So you're at Caves Valley. Those that haven't been to Caves Valley, it's one of the most beautiful places in the yep. world. I mean, I, I live an hour from there. It is, it's just a stunning piece of property right outside Baltimore. And you're the director of instruction there. Um, their clientele is high-end. Um, and like, I think of their director of instruction right now, like, you know, a great instructor, Bernie, Bernie Najar, Bernie Najar lives right near us. Okay. What in you is willing to say, Hey, I've got this great setup. You've worked your ass off probably to get to a place like that, where you can be, you know, earning a good living and having a nice life. What in you says, you know what, I'm actually going to go in this direction um, and sort of not pivot, but adjust my sales, so to speak? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, it's curiosity, right? I, I'm not a guy that if the door swings half open, I'm going through it. I came from Africa. I had nothing, right? So I, I look at this as the greatest country in the world, that if there's opportunities, we should be going after those opportunities. And if you're driven to do that, which I was. So I had achieved this incredible setup. We had built a, a learning center, which I built, which was the first time anybody really built something of that brand. And it was spectacular. I, you know, I had my own driving range. There's overnight cottages there that guests could come in and stay in. And it really was you know, what most instructors kind of get to that level. But I, I just felt like I could do so much more with what I was learning and that there was this opportunity existing that I would be silly not to try. And uh, I, I felt confident in my own abilities to be able to do that. And, and that's why I did it. And it's interesting in a sport like golf because so much attention is paid to the mechanics of it. And director of instruction, we're going to instruct you on how you swing. And then I get bent out of shape because people say golf is all mental. And I'll say, that's such bullshit. Like it's not all mental. And then my friends will give me shit because I'm a 15 index, which by the way, I've worked hard to become a 15 index and I'm not playing nearly as much as I could or should, but it's been, it's been hard to get to that level. I, when I started out, I was terrible at this sport because I wanted to be a basketball player as a kid and my friends were playing golf and I was a stubborn little child, but that's a whole different podcast. But for you, um, as you said, wow, there's this aha moment. No, it's, we have to figure out the body and how the body moves and how the body works um, first. And that's primary. Are you, it's interesting in golf that we focus so much on the mechanical and the mental, like people read books and talk about the mental a lot in golf, probably more than any other sport. As you are talking about this with baseball players and football players and teams, how are they thinking about the physics? And are they thinking about it 
differently or thinking about it similarly? Or do you notice that they're more open to thinking about the body than maybe a sport like golf is? How, how do you see those dynamics playing out? Well, I, I think there is a change, right? I think, you know, you think of something as big as baseball and, you know, they went down this after, you know, the, the analytical approach where they were all hiring data scientists to look at statistics. And they do that in golf too, to see, you know, this is how you perform. But statistics can be very vague in that some are very true, but may, maybe, maybe there's some underlying thing. So you have to be very careful with what statistics are. I think most elite level athletes, they know what they suck at. And they know what they need to do better, right? And, and you just have to sit down and ask them and they'll go, yeah, I need to go work on this. Now, sometimes they're wrong and they've got, but that's why coaching comes in and you've got to kind of expose them the right way. But, you know, I find that when I, when I look at baseball today, it's, it's changing rapidly. It's a massive sport. But the, one of the beautiful things about understanding the body is it's just common sense, right? It's like, you know, the movement should be a vital sign. And in America today, we have massive health crisis and we have all this problem with COVID and everything. And, and you know, we talk about, you know, your heart rate and all this type of stuff. And there's all these devices. I'm wearing one from, you know, the whoop ring and the whoop band or ring, all these different things looking at sleep. And, and there's all these metrics that elite athletes are me- measuring. But, but you have to have measure it or you have to go to a doctor to test your heart rate or take this. If you can't get out of bed or you take a walk and your back's hurting, you know there's something wrong immediately. So to me, movement should be a vital sign. It all starts there. And, you know, even things as we're getting older, like brain health and cognitive function, it's all a product of blood moving around the brain. And if you just sit and you have this sedentary lifestyle, the brain knows that it's going to start shutting things down because you're not using it. So movement to me is everything. And I think athletes are really realizing that. And uh, we realized that in golf, I think, you know, Tiger was, was probably one of our biggest proponents for building what we built in that he came out in 1997 and changed the world because he put a focus on fitness and he was doing things that others weren't doing. And that all of a sudden changed the dynamic. And, uh, you know, I think in baseball, the same thing is starting to happen and that people are understanding that, you know, maybe the reason, you know, my elbow's blowing out or my hip is dysfunctional is not just because I'm throwing or hitting a certain way. Maybe there's some other underlying reason that's actually quite simple to fix. Well, look, I know you have clients also on tour, but Bryson DeChambeau, love him or hate him. I mean, it's just remarkable what he's done with his body and yeah. completely transformed how he how he plays the game. I mean, it's, it's, it's transformative and you know, it's, it's a body, it's a body revolution and what he does with his body and how he treats his body. It's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, at at TPI, your philosophy there is to educate golf instructors, right. To really go after those industry professionals and help them then be armed with being able to see movement and help their clients move better as you think about the last 18 years, how do you think you all have done with infusing what you know and what you've learned? You mentioned earlier that you and Dr. Rose were scale, trying to scale this thing, right? We only had limited time. How do we infuse this into these instructors so that they can then help their people like me move better? How do you think you've done it infusing this into the industry? 
Well, I, I think we've done a pretty good job just based on the amount of instructors we have. And it's not just golf instructors. You know, what we did is we certified medical fitness and golf. So the medical are people that are treating people that have back pain or injuries from golf. And the fitness are building stronger, better, faster players, you know, and that's what kind of Bryson's done, changing his body. But, you know, what we found is most people would love to go somebody that at least understands the golf swing. So, you know, if you've got back pain, you'd kind of want to go to somebody that plays golf or has an understanding that certain moves in the golf swing can cause lower back pain. The golf swing is not great for the lower back. So you have to understand that the hips need to keep functioning to take the stress off the lower back and so on and so forth. And then the fitness professionals understanding how to build a golfer properly and build that base of strength, flexibility, mobility, and so on. And then golf professionals that can put it all together, right? So I think we've done a pretty good job in the fact we have 27,000 certified experts in 64 countries and we educate in 10 languages. And each one of them has clients, right, that are golfers. So I think we've impacted hundreds and hundreds of thousands of golfers. I know we have. And I think we're just scratching the surface. And Dave, where do you see it going in the, the next 20 years as you think about, hey, we've we've just started. We're, we're only, you know, I feel like we're just at the sort of start line instead of the finish line here. Where do you envision it? Where are you all going? What, what do you see changing over the next 20 years? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an exciting space. I mean, if you think about the technological, technological advancements we have today with uh, mobile phones and cameras that can track movement and things of that nature, you know, technology will be an ever part of our lives, right? It's not going away. It's coming faster than it ever has before. But really the secret source is the underlying programming that you layer on the technology that actually works. So using AI platforms and these supercomputers that can crunch data, it's really the deliverable. How can we deliver customizable you know, approaches to each individual based on how they move, based on what they're trying to achieve that actually work so that, you know, they're, they're, they're bound to want to do this, you know, and I, I just look at it going, you know, I, I think performance is health, right? So I think we need to develop a, instead of healthcare, a well-care society, people need ways to take better care of themselves and not rely so much on the system to take care of them. And, and we need to create technology around that. And if I can do that through performance, and if I can do that through the younger demographic too, I mean, there's a lot of kids that love sport and are engaged in sport, but I'm concerned that parents are ruining them because they're trying to you know, uh, specialize too early. How can we guide parents to do a better job so that those kids are fit for life through, through the sport that they love? So. I think it's unlimited what we can do. You have a ton of energy. You look, I, I, I reach out to people all the time to have them on the podcast. You so responsive, so organized, seemingly just have your stuff together. What do you do to ensure that you're at your best, that you're well, that you're healthy? Walk us through some of the things that you might do on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis, year-to-year basis to make sure that you have the energy that you want, that you're still curious, that you're still interested. Um, What do you do to take care of yourself? Yeah. So I think recovery is a big thing. I mean, I can go hard for a long amount of time, but I also monitor like things like sleep, you know, there's so much great research on sleep and how much you're getting and, and the quality of sleep. 
And I try and make sure I go to bed around 10 o'clock every night and wake up at six o'clock in the morning. And I do the things that I need to get restful sleep because I know that's what, that's what the body needs to repair. So you can push your body really hard. But if you look at like the really elite athletes, the LeBron James of this world, the Tom Brady, some of their sleep data, they're getting 12 to 14 hours of sleep a day when they're in season or they're trying to. So, you know, not all of us can do that. We live busy lives and these are professional athletes, but whatever, if you've got six hours or you've only got a small amount, you need to really focus on how that sleep is solid sleep because that is really like a, a car coming home that's electric and it's, it's depleted of energy. You're going to plug it into the wall and reboot it so that the next day you can go again. And, and I'm big on that. So I look at recovery. Obviously, food is a big factor staying away from certain things, but I'm certainly not a, hey, I've got to just eat this. I have my cheat days too, and I love all kinds of food as well. So it's all in moderation. Um, as I said, I'm curious. I love what I do every day. I love trying to find out how to make players that are working with me better. And to do that, that keeps my eyes open to anything and everything. So I read, I listen to podcasts like yours, I, I do lots of those kind of things. And uh, you got to have other interests too. And one of mine is, is coffee. I love coffee. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We're going to talk about coffee, but you know, I didn't send Dave a copy of my book. I usually send my podcast guests a copy of the book after we record as a thank you, which I'll still send, but it just speaks to your desire to learn, to be prepared, to grow um, for this. But, but let's talk about coffee. So you said, I love coffee. And you mentioned um, a business idea that you have with Phil Mickelson. And, and so one of the things that I find interesting is you partner with Dr. Greg Rose. Hey, this is something that we need to get out of the world. You're partnering with Phil on coffee. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Do you see yourself as a coach? Like, how do you, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as both? Uh, how do you think about yourself as an, from an identity standpoint and, and talk about your mindset when it comes to business and entrepreneurship? Yeah. I'm like a coach, coachpreneur. Right? <laughs> I'm kind of a bit of both because yeah, I mean, I, I love business, the, the world that way. And, and, you know, I often attend business meetings. I attend like the world greatest speaker conferences to be better at public speaking, because I think that that's a gift to be able to get up in front of a crowd. If you've got all this knowledge, but you can't get it out there, that to me is dangerous and you because that'll drive you nuts. So public speaking thing that I love to do and, and get out. And then, you know, I attend a lot of business functions. I've been asked by big corporations to speak kind of from a performance perspective, but you get in a room with business professionals, a lot of which listen to your podcast. And, and there are so many similarities between what we do and I can glean from them and they can glean from me. So I, I, I love the business side of what I do. So, you know, yes, I'm a performance coach, but I also have other interests and other business. TPI is a business um, that we've built and it does, does extremely well. And, and, you know, we've also got other ideas and interests in the performance space. And coffee was really just a hobby that became a business, right? And then that's kind of how that happened. And partnerships, so partnering with Phil, partnering with Greg, what have you learned about partnering with people when it comes to, to business as well? Well, I think, you know, partnerships are essential in today's world if you want speed to market. I think it's very difficult to be everything to everybody all the time. The world is just too fast paced and, you know, it's too easy to get information. So having partners that have a like minded mentality allow you to get to where you want to go much faster than you have before. And so I think partnerships are a good thing. 
And uh, I, I think, you know, it's been amazing for me. I mean, you know, Greg and I are so different, but yet again, we work so well together. And if you're, if we're one-on-one people will be like, my God, he's this type of guy and he's this guy. But when we come together in a room, it's like, it just works. Right. And, and I know where he's going and he knows where I'm going and he knows how they both fit together. So, you know, it's kind of like that yin and yang relationship. And uh, I, I love that about that. And then in Phil's world, you know, Phil was a friend before a business partner. I've known Phil for 20 years. Our kids grew up together, going to the same schools in the California area, and our wives are good friends and, and so on and so forth. So I've admired Phil as a golfer before, you know, he didn't really know what I did when we became friends. And then as we evolved and we kind of worked, uh, you know, he was with another company and I've never really coached Phil in that I've just been his friend. And if he asks me, I will help him. And he does ask me. And 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 so, you know, he's got a, his own team around him, but I've helped structure that team and, and, and helped guide him on what I think he needs to do. And um, that that's continuing now where we're, we're putting some things in place right now. But but the coffee world came about really my love and passion came from Africa. You know, growing up in Kenya as a kid, my dad used to take me to these watering holes on Saturday mornings, jump in the truck and Land Rover and go out into a safari park. And there was a Maasai tribesman that used to come down and make us coffee on fire pit for a shilling, you'd buy a cup of coffee. And it was one of the most incredible experiences I shared with my father was drinking coffee out of a can and watching animals come to a watering hole. And and it was just like this life-changing experience that stuck with me. And then through my life growing up, coffee has been that grounding factor because it brought me back to my childhood. And then going out into the world and traveling the world like I have, and that was kind of one of my hobbies. I wake up in the morning, I go find a coffee shop. I go find a different kind of coffee. And I started studying the varieties. Like some people love wines. I love coffee. And then I started researching a little bit more around the benefits of coffee. And it's a superfood. Coffee has some of the highest antioxidants in the world of any food if you drink it black. You know, what we tend to do is load it with things that we really shouldn't put in it. But, you know, a black cup of coffee is extremely beneficial to your health. Performance athletes drink it because of the caffeine and it gets them that alertness. And then I started looking at, well, what else could I do to coffee to actually make it even better and turn it into a superfood? And we developed an additive called the good stuff that goes in coffee. And then we built this brand for wellness and coffee for wellness, where we're looking at things that are good for you and trying to get people to take accountability for their own health. And, and Phil has that same vision because he's doing that himself. And he's he's been a yo-yo dieter. And that's why he loved this idea of doing something that actually, you know, had this great, uh, g- great product and uh, great idea behind it. What do Phil and John have in common and what are they different? How are they different? So obviously age, they're, they're, they're quite a bit older than each other. I mean, you know, Phil's 51 now and John just turned 27, but they both um, you know, obviously John looks up to Phil tremendously. They both went to ASU. I actually brought John to play with Phil when he first came to TPI. I was like, I called Phil, I go, you got to see the way this kid hits a golf ball. And I remember him telling me that that kid could be number one in the world one day. And, and he is, you know, he could see it and I could see it. And I would say that they both have an incredible love for the game. They love it. They would think of nothing else to do but get up. I mean, to this day, I'm amazed at Phil. I mean, Phil, 
if you're home, I mean, he'll play 36. And if the sun's still up, he'll play 54. And if we could squeeze in more, we'll keep playing. You know, and, and you know, a lot of times you play 18 holes like, wow, that was great. And, you know, you'll walk off 18 green and he'll look at his watch and go, I think we can get another 18. What are you, are you guys ready? And I'm like, this is, isn't this your week off? Aren't you, you know, but he just loves the competition and loves the game. And I, I see that same thing with John when John's home, he loves to play and they continue playing. And I just see this drive that, that, that they both have um, and this passion and love for their sport. Do you love to play? I do love to play. I do. And, and uh, I'm trying to find ways to get myself to have access to play a little bit more. You know, when you do what I do and you have all the things going on, it, it's hard to break away and do that. Obviously, golf is a time consuming sport, but um, I, I do love the game. I, you know, it, it was something I grew up with with a kid and I, I really do love it. It's interesting because I love the coffee story because you talked about the groundedness of it, the simplicity of it. We're at a watering hole. We're seeing animals. It's just me and my dad. It sounded peaceful. It sounded yeah. silent. And your, your upbringing, you lived in 27 different countries, 13 high schools. Uh, you moved around a lot. And today, I mean, TPI, you've taken it all over the world and you're traveling and you're moving. And I listened to your conversation with Mike Gervais and you talked about constantly being on the road and, and being around. Do you prefer to be grounded and being around a water hole, so to speak, or a fire pit with close friends? Or do you prefer to be traveling the world and, and exploring and, and seeing new things? So I think you need both in life, right? You need something that gets you grounded so that you can reflect and, and really reflect on what you're doing, where you are in your journey. And, you know, life is a journey and it's really short when you think about how old the earth is and how long we've been here. And, and I, I really think people need to reflect and, and, and think about that. And, and just be nice to everybody, right? And I, I look at it going, but I love to explore. You know, my nature growing up in these countries was exploration, going to a different school, meeting new people. I had to figure out a way to fit in very quickly because otherwise it wouldn't be fun. And you just take that on as a new challenge and then going to another country and exploring. I mean, I love getting up at like, you know, early in the morning, you know, different time zones and just going for a walk not having a plan, not looking at my phone, just walking. And it, it's, it's just fascinating to me. And those, those quiet moments, early mornings, you know, those ground me getting up and, and reflecting and, and coffee grounds me. And uh, those are, those are my ways. And I think everybody should have their way, whether it's yoga or, or exercise or something, or that should be your way, but don't ever stop looking or, or exploring. I mean, that that's the nature of who we are as, as human beings. Don't, don't ever stop doing that. I love the idea of being and becoming this idea that we need to be, and we need space to be. And we also can still focus on becoming, whether that's reading or growing or learning wow. from people. It's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to plan a trip with my wife to go away. And we were looking over the itinerary and I was saying to her, like, I just want to like, go get lost in a town and just walk around. We got two small kids. Like, we don't really get lost that much. A few a few weeks ago, we did a staycation in Washington D.C., and my wife and I, without the kids, we just walked you know a couple miles, and we just saw our city, which we hadn't done that much since our kids were born. We've gone to restaurants, but we take an Uber, and then we get picked up, and then you know we look out the window, but you don't really get to feel it and see it. 
and walking a city or a town or or in nature uh that novelty that's what i've missed probably the most over the last two years is just new experiences new memories seeing new things um it's definitely been limited from from my vantage point um for you look you've built helped build tpi at 27 thousand people um have gone through this like you've you, the impact as you mentioned on the golf world and people's bodies is immense uh you mentioned relationships with two of the best golfers to ever play the game so i'd imagine people are asking you to do things all the time um how do you decide what you say yes to and, and what you say no to yeah you know i i man that's a that's a great question i think um I very rarely say no because of my curiosity, right? Um, but sometimes you don't have time in the day to do everything that people are asking you to do. And, you know, I'm pretty good at kind of figuring out what that does it align with what I love, right? And, and me, more than anything, the decision to say yes is can I learn something from it, not can they learn something from me? And that's kind of the way I approach everything. So I'm willing to say yes if I think, hmm, Maybe this is some way of me understanding and, and it's kind of my calling. So, um, but, but there are times when you, you have to say no, and it's, it's really, those are just things that are taking me away from my passions, away from the things that I love to do. And so if it's taking me away from that, I'll say no. If it's aligned with my own views, then I'll usually say yes. And you're a father? Pardon? You're a father, dad? I do. I have two kids. I, I have a son at University of Miami and a daughter at Villanova Law School. And um, both great kids that are, you know, I've tried to expose the world to them and make sure that growing up, they got to see places because um, I, I wanted that for them. Um, you know, there's nothing better than I took a trip with my daughter to Tokyo and to Korea and we got lost. We walked around for days without a plan. And we had some of the greatest time ever. And I've done the same kind of things with my son and took them to Africa and showed them a world that they could never realize. And I think one, one of the things that I've seen a lot in my life, you know, I, I've seen people in, in dire straits and I've seen death and destruction and, and things that nobody would probably see. And when I look at it, I'm going, you know, we, I think all too often in America don't realize how good we have it. And I only wish for people in this country that they could see what's going on in the rest of the world, because you might have a different understanding of, of why people want to come to this country. Yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting. So I, as we're recording this, like I, I have COVID right now for the first time and, um, you know, I'm okay. Like we'll be all right. Um, and and yet I talked to someone else today who lost two people from COVID this mm -hmm. week, um, died uh, close to them. Right. And I mentioned that just to say how important perspective is and how important it is to look at where we are and then to still think about, well, what am I grateful for? Um, you know, yeah, how can I make things better? But also to understand that, um, someone else is probably going through something pretty challenging as well. And you said something earlier that wasn't lost on me. You said, we just need to be kinder to each other. Um, we probably need to have more space and grace for each other and understanding for each other. And I think to your point, traveling the world allows you to see things 
and not even the world. You can travel within your city, right? Or you can travel to different parts of your town. And, and I think it doesn't mean that someone that has less than is living a less fulfilling life or a more impactful life, but there is value in understanding that um, we, we always have stuff to be grateful for and we need to understand that. So for me, that was a, a wake up call this morning where I was like, oh man, the last five days, I haven't felt great. Um, but then I talked to someone else like, oh, they just lost family members. Like, you know, perspective is a really, really powerful thing. Any, any thoughts on perspective? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I, and I think, you know, unfortunately today, you know, we're kind of in a media driven world that we don't know who to trust anymore on either side, honestly. And, and that's sad. And that, you know, I, I think that, you know, if, if we did, if you put politics aside and there was a disaster, it's, it's, it's sad that a disaster, like, you know, we were both around when the World Trade Center happened, you can remember exactly where you were. There was no political thing there. That was like the, a, a group of people coming together to save lives and people rushing in to do things. You wouldn't blink or hesitate if that happened to try and help somebody, right? And, and I think that we, we need to have that perspective in life and that, you know, and, and that's why I love that quote. And it's actually a Walt Whitman and there's a bridge that goes into New York City and it's on the side of the bridge and it says, don't be judgmental, be curious. And, and I kind of live by that in that it's really easy today to be judgmental, you know, from being bombarded in social media to everything. Um, but be curious, but try and try and ask yourself that question as to, well, why do they think that way? Just because you don't think that way doesn't mean that they don't have an opinion. And, you know, listen, we can all disagree and we can all agree, but, you know, you should have your own opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, Dave. So you can't bring up that quote without bringing up Ted Lasso. I'm assuming you're watching Ted Lasso. Love it. it. The greatest show on earth, that one. That's the best. And one of the greatest scenes is he's, you know, throwing darts and he says, there's that Walt Whitman quote, don't be judgmental, be curious. What are your thoughts on Ted Lasso? What are your thoughts on that as a show? You said, I love it. It's great. Um, but the seat that you're in, do you, you're, you're now working with baseball players, football players. Wow. Uh, is there, is there any possibility of this even being a real thing or is it just fun, fun for us to think about and, and to play with and what are your thoughts on the show you know it's funny because you know obviously i was born in england so football or soccer as you call it in america is is massive right and it's the biggest sport in the world so you know there are a lot of idiosyncrasies that i think when some people first watch that show they couldn't understand the british culture well i do and and you know when you watch that show and you have this american football coach that moves to london to coach this team there's just, it just, I, I can't stop laughing. It's just one of the greatest shows. And it's got so many great characters in there from Roy, the guy who's always mad to whatever. But, but, you know, it, it's funny because that the, one of the, one of the big scenes in there where they talk about, you know, be a goldfish because the guy's thinking too much and the goldfish can only think for so many seconds. John actually used, John Rom used that quote in a, in a media. And I was hysterical in the background. You couldn't hear me, but I was like, that's exactly what I wanted him to say. And that, you know, and, and to his perspective, I mean, this kid, you know, he, he loves golf. I mean, even this last weekend, we had a chance to win and didn't finish. And I know he was upset walking off the 18th green because he knows that he was, he's good enough to have closed that tournament, but, you know, you know, and you're expecting him to be mad and upset. And the first thing he said is it's just golf. 
then he moved on, hugged his kid, and he's ready to go next week. So, you know, it's it's perspective and, and really understanding. And I, I just love shows. I think, you know, one of the things we all need to do in life is you need to end your day watching or listening to something funny, right? Don't go to bed mad or upset. So find a comedian, find some show that you love and just laugh. It's like Seinfeld. I keep it keeps coming on and I keep seeing episodes that I must have seen every episode, but why is it always on? And there's something like, I, I don't think I've seen this. And it's hysterical. It, it's just some of the ways and the interactions are just so funny and find something that makes you laugh. It's, it's, it's very important. It's interesting because you, you come off as kind of an intense guy. Like I think you, you, you go and you go after the things that you care about, but you also value humor, which is a, a cool place for us, I think, to, to wind down here. Um, Dave, if people want to follow you on social media, I know you're on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know how active you are there, but if there's anywhere on social media, people should follow you to know what you're up to, or the website is mytpi.com. Uh, there's a bunch of great information there. Uh, what else would you want to give a platform to, or what else should people know about you or, or stuff that you care about? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, that that's kind of my platform. I mean, we're obviously we're on uh, all, all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and, and uh, Instagram with the hashtag MyTPI uh, handle. Um, I'm also part of ForWellness.com or Coffee for Wellness, so I'm on theirs as well. And we have a little bit more fun side to what we do there with coffee. And uh, yeah, and and I am on LinkedIn. I am not as active as I probably should be because I get a lot of requests and. Sometimes I, I could spend my whole day on there if I'm not careful, but, uh, but yeah, th that's where you can find me. Dave, thanks so much. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Twitter um, at Brian Levinson and people can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Dave, really glad our paths have crossed next time you're in the DC area. Hopefully we can chat and you actually are making me think about there is a guy locally who I know specializes in physical movement and, um, you know, there are other instructors that I know that have gone through your certification. And as I'm taking golf lessons now and trying to work on my game, to be honest with you, I really think the physical, I tore my ACL a few years back and, um, you know, I, I just am not flexible and I've got some real physical limitations that I really do think impact my golf game. So as I try to improve and get better, you're having me really think about it. And I'd encourage everybody else or anybody else who is doing anything physical to really think about their movements and, and how they can get better at them. So uh, this has been a blast. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to meeting you in person as well sometime soon. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. We look at the body as an alternating pattern. The foot, you know, has an arch in it that creates stability. The ankle should be mobile. The knee should be stable. The hip should be mobile. The lower back should be stable. The thoracic spine should be mobile. So the body works in this alternating pattern, the stable segments connected to mobile joints, right? And that is life. That's how when you look at a little baby, do a perfect squat or get up and move, you're like, how can the body move that way? We all once moved that way, right? So what changes so when i see something unusual the first thing i do is i go physically assess it and go okay is it working because that's the only way it can work because of a physical limitation or did they create this on their own and it helps me build this plan in my mind of what i'm dealing with <laughs>